Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, and welcome to Is It My ADHD, the podcast about what it really feels like to have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. I'm Grace Timothy, and I'm a writer, and I wasn't diagnosed with ADHD until I was 37. I'd struggled with traits I now know to be ADHD all my life, but it wasn't until a routine hearing appointment with a doctor who happened to have ADHD himself that these traits were pieced together, and it was suggested that I get referred for an assessment. Had it not been for that random moment with an audiologist, I'd still be undiagnosed now and still struggling, just like the two million women thought to have undiagnosed ADHD in the UK today. I want to better understand what ADHD feels like for women and non-binary people, in whom ADHD is so often missed, thanks to the fact that the diagnostic criteria and research is all heavily skewed to the white male case study. I've therefore spoken to some incredible women about how ADHD affects their lives, exploring everything from friendship and work to dating and self-esteem. I've also pulled in some experts along the way to help us tackle the big questions from you and from my guests. Is it my ADHD when I ghost old friends, for example? Is it my ADHD when I break the photocopier at work? And is it my ADHD when I share nudes on Instagram? My hope is that we can spread awareness of ADHD in women and non-binary people and that you'll find some comfort in knowing you're far from being alone. Because with the right support, we can be truly amazing. Today, we're looking at boom and bust, the cycle of hyperfocus followed by a physical or emotional crash. And we'll be talking to author and campaigner Rebecca Schiller about how that's played out in her life. It's not yet part of the official criteria for diagnosing ADHD, and yet it's come up time and time again when I speak to both experts and folks with ADHD. Boom and bust, the idea that you go all out and then collapse in a heap. For me, it's always been something I've confused with being physically ill, being lazy, having anxiety or having depression. I'll absolutely go to town at work when that hyperfocus kicks in, without taking breaks or even really eating, and then crash, I'm done in. Or I'll go out night after night and then suddenly I'm in bed for an entire weekend. It can be smaller things. A big chat at the school gate with someone who's new to me can result in an evening of being monosyllabic and floppy. It's exhausting masking and just navigating the neurotypical and, by the way, capitalist society with all its gender norms and expectations around hard work and conformity. Rebecca Schiller is an author, journalist and women's rights campaigner and unbelievably manages to do so much more on the side. 
a tireless advocate for the childbirth charity Birthrights, as well as issues of inclusivity, and the founder of the Mothers Who Write Network and Writers' Retreats, all the while running a small holding in Kent with her husband and two children. Rebecca is busy. I got to know her really well on one of her writers' retreats as she finished her memoir Earthed, which came out this year. What I didn't know at the time was that she was midway through the ADHD diagnostic process, and Earthed was the book that opened my eyes to what ADHD really looked like for a woman of today. In this book, I recognised the same boom and bust cycle I had endured for the best part of 30 years. Rebecca, I'm so happy to have you here today. This is really exciting. Thank you <laughs> yeah, for having me. it's so nice me. to see. Oh, it's such a pleasure to have you. I think one of the, the, the biggest things that stood out to me in the book and just talking to you afterwards was this idea that you were trying to hide like your eight slimy octopus legs that no one else was aware of, no one else could see, but inside you, you were trying to suppress something. Is that something that now you've had that light bulb moment? Does it feel the same or has that sort of evolved at all with the knowledge? Is yes, that octopus yeah. still kind of flailing? Around. Yeah, I, I think the octopus is. I think the strange thing about being suddenly aware, A, that you're masking and that that's hard and that you're hiding something. And the thing you're hiding is something that you've learned to really hate. On my, my From my side, I've learned that this is bad and therefore I should hide it and I'm very ashamed of it. And I think the, I'd like to get to a place where I don't hate the bad stuff and and the octopus and I are, are, are one <laughs> friends with my octopus but I think for me it's been quite traumatic to be so aware of the it's often excruciating masking and to be mm. able to be aware of it and then feel it <laughs> uh, and then also have to be confronted with my inner slimy octopus messiness and know that I should love it but have spent, you know, 39 years hiding it and hating it. It's actually been really, really difficult. But I think that process, I hope, will be one that allows me to be much more sort of integrated instead of um, being both a mask and a, a hidden octopus and then, you know, working very hard to, to bridge that gap. You say in Earthed, the pressure and struggle to keep up the facade under society's intense and unequal scrutiny Gender roles and expectations that are already unfair, unachievable, are made all the harder to meet. You also say, I cover it up, referring to ADHD-led behaviours. What's the cost of this process to you, physically? Oh, I mean, it's, I think it comes at an extraordinary physical cost. I mean, I, I have um, got to a point, you know, over the past couple of years, where I've realised that I've actually sort of physically clenching every single muscle there was none none left <laughs> um and and that was actually sort of it's been quite difficult and, and physically painful to work out that um I've sort of various hypertonic muscles that are just go holding on clinging on um and exhaustion um reaching a point where I can ignore and I feel like this is common to lots of neurodivergent people I've spoken to that got quite a high tolerance for different kinds of pain and distress and don't notice them for a very 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 long time and can pop up the next morning like a, like a little jack-in-the-box pop up in the morning I'm ready to go again having the night before sometimes thought I don't know how I'm gonna face this day and that could be really useful but I think it eventually for me gets to a point where I'm completely physically emotionally exhausted so yes I think sensory 
triggers get much worse my sort of attention span my decision making abilities and and I've experienced particularly over the last five years a sort of increasing cycle of being really sort of falling out of the world being very unable to do even the basic things that I would normally do and shrinking my life down even though I'm very busy and I've got lots of lots of things on actually shrinking everything else around it you know not driving as much not going to the supermarket you know taking everything else possibly off my agenda without realizing it and um, uh, I think that's that's an experience that lots of neurodivergent people I think have um, um, and not not realizing it until perhaps it's a little bit too late well, I think, I mean, it, I completely, it all resonates, but I think there's two boom and bust cycles, it seems. There's the micro, which is the everyday of like, you know, I, I had to be switched on all day today and now I'm absolutely beside myself and anxious and depressed and tired, all those things. But then there's the macro, isn't there, where it's a year and at the end of that year you go, holy shit, how am I still alive and how am I going to do that again? And And it kind of creeps up on you, right? Absolutely. And and I mean, I think for me, my, and I'm using the uh, inverted commas sign at this moment, you know, <laughs> resilience mm. um, around the micro boom and bust contributes to how um, the macro, how serious the kind of macro boom and bust is. And I think I've also realised that I really sort of have beaten myself up about not being able to to change that you know mm. and it, thinking thinking it's very very bad you know why am I doing so many things I'm over committing I'm not prioritizing and I'm overworking I'm burning myself out and then on the bus side then I you know I'm completely unable to do things and seeing that as a very very negative cycle and of course for me it has been but also trying to engage with what parts of that cycle are kind of positive and normal for me and what aspects of the negative boom and bust might not necessarily be the way I do things being wrong but the way I do things being misunderstood or in combination with how you're supposed to be what mm. you're supposed to do what a normal work life is supposed to like what success looks like and thinking about whether there's ways to make my natural inclinations uh work for me um rather than be compelled to to do all of these things but somehow try and stuff them into a very neurotypical box and I think for me a lot of the tension a lot of the distress is around needing to be a certain way because of my neurodivergent brain but then trying to put that in a nice little neurotypical package and present it to the world as oh no I'm just doing the I'm just doing the normal success don't worry yeah, <laughs> this is what it looks like and so I think there is a sort of um for me a tension there between not trying to learn to be normal but trying to learn to be me and um yeah I, I'm looking forward to knowing how to do that <laughs> Well, and I, mean, I don't know how, how do you deal with the bus? Because I feel like a big part of both of us being diagnosed was that we understood what happened in the past, right? And mm. we could understand how we were feeling in that moment as well. But when you look to the future, if that boom and bust, if that kind of cycle of like, I'm in it, I'm in it, I'm going, I'm still going. Oh, and my, you know, I'm, I seem to be more resilient this time. I'll keep going until that runs out. I think the thing that worries me about the future a little bit is like, 
I don't see how that's going to change. But also I need to learn how to deal with the bust if it's not going to change, because otherwise it impacts on other people, doesn't it? We both know as, you know, the matriarchs. Yes, yes. And I I think there's a few things for me that I've been trying to think about and work on. One of those is just permission to let myself, I've been trying to think of it as flowing, mm-hmm. um, kind of flowing much more through what I want to do rather than setting myself a lot of kind of arbitrary targets. And sometimes that looks like, I know that I know I have to do my tax return. Uh, I <laughs> know I have to do my tax return. And normally I would have that on a lot of lists and I still wouldn't do it until the last minute, but I would have it on a lot of lists. And so I just haven't made a list. Um, and I do still know I have to do my tax return. And I've never not done my tax return on time ever. Uh, but looking at how much of the emotional effort of boom is holding on to things like I must do my tax return, I mustn't forget because it would be so terrible if I forgot to do my tax return, putting that on 15 different lists. And yet having been someone who has never ever missed a tax return deadline, I'm having an attempt to kind of see what happens if I just sort of let myself flow a little bit and see what happens if I make make some mistakes and and, and, and forget things. And I think for me, I wonder whether the, the bust will be lessened because what I'm doing is taking a bit of pressure off myself emotionally, realising that the consequences of some of the things that are very um, intense for me in a boom cycle are about the covering up, the doing things right. And if I perhaps find ways to take those out, I'm taking the pressure off myself a bit. And I think it's also, I was thinking about it with... (laughs) with oversharing mm. um I was like oh well, I wonder what we'll Grace and I will talk about maybe I might overshare um <laughs> and I, I thought that's a funny thing to talk to Grace about um <laughs> thinking about what you've written about and yeah, um, yeah. what I've written about and people have said to me you know you're so honest you said so much and and I sometimes feel bad about that. And I think about it in social settings. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. That was definitely TMI. And why do I do that? And so realizing that that's just how I am. There's no point for me in having those conversations that are very surface level. I can't do that. Mm. It's not, I see what the real conversation is and that's what I want to have. But realizing that that has a cost. So instead of spending the emotional energy on thinking I should learn to set better boundaries I shouldn't talk about this stuff and then being upset with myself for putting myself in that position perhaps thinking about the frequency in which I put myself in that position or what it is I might need to do in the two weeks after say I run a writing retreat which is full of super intense conversations and sharing that maybe I need not to see many people for the next couple of weeks and trying to put that to myself more as this is who you are this is how you do things and that's fine you want to overshare that's the only way you can share maybe it's not oversharing for you maybe it's just how you are but what do you need to be able to be like that and um, finding where all of that difficulty and energy is in the boom cycle it isn't in having loads of ideas that doesn't cost me stuff and actually deciding to paint my whole house or dig up the vegetable patch or do an avocado 
that takes some energy, but it's nice energy. I like doing that stuff. The place where it gets really grimy and grotty is where I'm trying to make that normal, make that what everybody else does, hide things. And so I feel like for me, the more I can strip that out and, and work on my own terms, I'm hoping that the bust bit where I might just need to stand around and look at the sky for three weeks, seeing that not as, oh, I've had a breakdown, I can't do anything, I'm rubbish, but like, oh, this is my bit where I just need to like gather again. I need to go out and like recharge myself. I've been expending and now I get to plug myself in. And maybe that is exactly the same as a really negative boom and bust, but inside when I say that it feels much better. Well, we need to rename it, possibly. Boom and bust is a little bit, that's a little bit harsh. But also, I mean, I think talking of oversharing and and that's another standard that's been set outside of us. Mm -hmm. So I would never have a conversation with you and think, holy, like that's a lot of information, Rebecca. I did not need to know. (laughs) Like that would just, it wouldn't cross my mind to think like that. And so that kind of thing where people say that the things that we've written are brave or raw or any of those things, it's like, it's just, it's just what comes out. So it's your standard that's maybe slightly different and it doesn't mean that your standard is the right standard, you know? No, no, I think that's, and it's interesting that people's reactions to the, particularly the very difficult mental health stuff that that I've written and I'm sure you've had had similar responses. Some people are so lit up by it, even though it's mm. difficult stuff, like, oh, I'm so grateful to read this. It's made me, and, and I've, I've spoken to some people who you can tell are really, upset and discomforted and can't quite understand and it you can hear from the tone of their voice that their question is a little bit are you aware that you wrote this and you you sent it out and the other people that I've read it that I know this stuff about you Mm. and that's when I find it hard and it's because that sets off my internal oh I did the wrong thing I that was I there was a rule I broke your octopus it. Is I, like out yeah, there. it's yeah. like that. There's, I've left slime on your yeah. <laughs> on your you sofa. Slapped her around the face with a tentacle. That's the problem. Yeah, <laughs> and the level of awfulness I feel about that, about mm. the rule breaking, I think is is something that takes a huge amount of my energy. Yeah. Um, if I wasn't expending quite so much energy on on feeling bad about that, I might have a bit more left in mm. when my sort of super active phase comes to to an end it's really interesting when you were saying about uh your boom phase and and the things that you find energy for and how you've sort of ended up at times shrinking your existence down Mm. but with lockdown I didn't go through any boom and bust whatsoever I did lots I achieved lots I achieved small things like I washed the car seat covers I've never done that in my life I should have done it years ago. It was disgusting. But I've never done it because I cannot add that to my list. My mental list is too long. Um, and, I've, and I found such utter, utter peace in lockdown because the decisions were, what do I wear today? You know, what shall I do? I had lots of creative ideas because although I couldn't, you know, take any to fruition because I was looking after my daughter and homeschooling and all that stuff, I it was it was a much more fertile ground for just being myself like you say finding inspiration and getting things done that as I say I've never been able to do before what was your experience of the world sort of shutting you out a little bit at that time and and how that affected the process yeah I think it was it was really interesting to suddenly be forced into a situation I'd already been creating for Mm. myself 
you know, moving to a small holding, the first thing I did is there were no gates and we needed them. We had small children at the time. It was a busy road, but I had the gates installed when we moved in very quickly. I wanted gates. I wanted to be able to stop people coming in. Not because I never want to see anybody, but the thought of somebody's surprise popping in. It's like the worst no. thing ever. Please never do oh. that to me. You are never welcome to pop into my house. <laughs> I will lie if you do it, but <laughs> I I will I will hate it a lot. <laughs> um, um, but it it was it was some some aspects of it I were so freeing. The kind of micro decisions that lots of other people don't worry about that I worry about were removed. And I realised I've been doing a, a strange project of rewriting the book Earth that I wrote for the UK for an American publisher. It's almost a completely different book, though about the same time period. Because turns out if you want someone with ADHD to be interested in doing it again, they have to make it new. <laughs> um, oh, so was a lot of the newness kind of self-directed then? Um, there was there were there were some requests to um, because when I started writing Earth, I had no idea that ADHD would be part of it. Yeah. Um, so, and it's one of the things I love about the book is that it it's a real evolution across quite a short space of time. A book that set out to be about a small holding and ended up being about being neurodivergent. Um, but because I did know by the time it was going to America, they really wanted to focus on that aspect of it. And also it had been a year and quite an intense year. And I was able to come back to the aspect of sort of neurodivergence and think about it again. But of course, I couldn't just leave it at that. And I am someone that likes to spot patterns and links and for everything to fit together once you start tinkering with one bit you know when you you know when you clean your kitchen and you clean one bit and then everything else looks not quite right and you have to do the next bit yeah it was a bit like that I realized that my the things I had been shutting out of my life before lockdown cutting down on were things that involved engaging with other people in an unsafe way for me which in fact is almost every way. So it was particularly things where I would find the environment stressful, like the supermarket um, and commuting, meetings with people that I didn't know, socialising in situ. It was all about presenting myself to the world. The things where I do do loads of stuff at home, uh, you know, with people that I really know and really trust, were fine and and so lockdown you know in lots of ways was a relief um because that stuff was taken away I think for me it was a little bit different because I was doing some quite intense work projects mm. and coming out of that I you know this spring I was doing a lot of publicity so even though it was from here it did involve a lot of engaging with the outside world again um but part of that process and part of writing the American edition which is called a thousand ways to pay attention was thinking realizing a personal realization that some of the negative things that I experienced in boom are about trauma mm. and that I had developed a trauma response to engaging with the world yeah. <laughs> um, and that that was just getting more and more and more and more severe 
the more I did that and that in some ways lockdown was really helpful with that but actually you know I think you put a lot of a lot of additional stresses in and the more you don't do something the more difficult it, it gets as well so that's been a big revelation and a big part of my own sort of development and and trying to sort of get better and get healthier is actually looking at what aspects of my way of doing things are driven by trauma and where does that trauma live and how can I deal with it um and and so yeah the way I've been talking about boom and bust with you now is is really informed by um having having been having trauma therapy for essentially my lovely GP who you will have um read about in earth who is a total hero said to me I think maybe you need some trauma therapy and I was like what do you, why do I need what I haven't had a traumatic event it's fine he's like no but what about your entire life that, <laughs> oh god that, what that, about your that, life yeah hasn't your life oh. you know hasn't that been quite you know a series of micro and then less micro um I was like oh yes hang on that sounds about right and I think that's something again when the talk to other neurodivergent people and read read what they've written and that even if we're not talking about it as trauma the way that it manifests and the when you get to that point the bust point for me that bust is an inability to hide and manage my response to trauma um a lot of it is that there's an exhaustion there's a you know I'm physically and emotionally tired from doing all of these things but I actually need to be really busy. I need to move my body. I need to have lots of ideas. I don't need to be having that deeply held negative response to myself sort of brought on by the outside world all the time. And I think for me, that's when it all, there'll be one one thing too many in there. Oh, this makes me, this makes me hate myself a lot. And that's the thing that tends to bring on the and now I can't anymore. <laughs> you mm. know, now I need to, you know, I need to retreat completely. Um, I think it's important to differentiate as well. Boom and bust isn't like being on a treadmill at 100 miles an hour for an hour and then having to sleep. It's, it, as you say, it's the it's the burden of masking and of fitting in. So actually, presumably, I mean, like, for example, we could we could spend maybe a weekend together and not experience the bust because there is no pretense there's no falseness there it is mm. just you can be who you want to be and it's the same presumably you know with your partner and often with your kids and things but it's about society making that not okay and you having to deal with that the fallout of whatever that is yeah i think i think there's definitely the kind of broader ableist society the mm. way that the way that we're supposed to work yeah. have a goal but make sure it's just one goal. Don't be don't be scattered or distracted or have too many. Don't pick things up and put them down. That's bad. What what would be the benefit of that? You need one, and you need to march steadily towards it with equally sized steps. Just take one every day. Don't run for a bit. Don't stop and pause. Definitely don't have an idea and put lots into it and then drop it. You, you can turn those into diagnostic criteria and pathologize them. And, and they can absolutely be really destructive and difficult. But um, I've been reading some of the stuff that a really brilliant designer and kind of advocate called Marta Rhodes has written. And she, talk, she talks about time and the idea that if you see, if you wildly expand your time period in which you consider success, 
as someone who's neurodivergent, you might find that, yeah, you had an idea and you put it down five years ago, but that's the thing that's sparking your idea today. And that why, why is it, if you're someone that generates a lot of ideas, it's okay to have 15 and try 15 of them out and maybe only one of them sticks. Um, and that it might be okay to have periods so the idea of an ellipsis periods where you're really, really fast and everything's coming together and then you need a bit where you stand and stare out of the window. That's not OK if you're trying to run a factory. You mm. need everybody to show up at the same time every day and work in a methodical way. But actually, that way of working is not OK for lots of people, lots of more neurotypical people. But it is often definitely not OK for people with ADHD um, autistic people and other neurodivergent people so yeah it's it's that sort of trying to understand wh yeah which bits of that cycle are helpful and which which are society treading on your toes and also the internalized stuff actually sometimes society would be fine with me doing doing, <laughs> doing this shit they don't care they don't even notice it's just that I'm so like please don't notice don't notice anything that for me the consequences I remember somebody who who read uh saying yeah but people always like you made this big deal about forgetting these forgetting two meetings in a row and people do that people forget stuff it doesn't mean they've got ADHD just because they forget things and I really thought about that. I was like, oh, maybe that's right. It's like, why is it so abnormal? It's like how awful it was for me to have forgotten anything. Yeah. I'm not allowed to forget anything because then people will see, you know, the octopus. Mm. Yeah. It is, it is that. It's it's a lot of people will say, but I experienced this, but I experienced that. What's ADHD and what's just, you know, 21st century womanhood, 21st century humanity? Like, it's just the intensity and the frequency, isn't it, that just differentiates. I'm so excited to announce that this podcast is sponsored by the first makeup brand I ever bought as a teenager, Benefit Cosmetics. I saved up for Benetint for weeks and that love remained strong when I became a beauty editor years later. Roller Lash is my absolute favourite mascara of all time. Gimme Brow Plus and Precisely My Brow are my go-to brow products and I still use Benetint on the daily. Makeup is something I reach for to give myself a moment to ground, to breathe and be in my own thoughts for a minute just like my own personal form of meditation that happens to help make me feel fierce. Benefit has remained a mainstay in my own routine for more reasons than one. I love the way Benefit connects customers with amazing causes and today is amplifying various voices around neurodivergence. I'll be working with Benefit, not just on the podcast, but they've also asked me to explore how the Benefit counter experience can be more accessible to those with brains a bit like mine. I'll be sharing the ways we're working together and would love to hear your thoughts on this too. I still can't believe I'm launching Is It My ADHD with my OG beauty obsession at the heart. What I thought was interesting about, you know, when you're talking about the way that we have to engage with people and how that often is a huge part of the bust, mm -hmm. is that so many of the things might look like anxiety so when I would say to Rich I can't I cannot face going into London tomorrow I, I cannot face this I cannot face that it would look to him like right we need to help Grace with her anxiety because she's frightened and and I would think but I'm not and I can't and that's actually even harder for me to access the help because 
you know, I tried CBT and I did all the reading you could do. And, you know, I've worked on anxiety in quote marks for, well, since I was about eight. Mm. And actually there's a freeness to realising it's not something that you can necessarily work on and fix like that. It's about maybe changing the approach to the whole situation. Um, And I think with that, there's an acceptability, isn't there? And, And also there's a sort of forgiveness of self. Did you feel any kind of freeness or freedom off the back of your diagnosis that that's what it was yes definitely at the time when I sort of stumbled across this article and realized ADHD might be a thing for me I was having NHS CBT and they'd been through several models under which they were trying to treat me and they'd ended up with clinical perfectionism it started with generalized anxiety disorder and then moved to clinical perfectionism and I was trying really hard to accept that I was both of those people and to learn not to learn essentially that my problem was I wanted everything to be absolutely perfect it was completely unacceptable for me if things weren't extraordinarily perfect and then this was tying myself up in all of these anxious knots so I cared about things that did not matter that weren't important I worried about things that I didn't need to worry about that weren't worrying and I needed to learn how to not care about things an abnormal amount and worry about things that weren't important and upsetting Mm. So, you know what, it's been really validating to realise that actually I worry about these things because for me, they are genuinely worrying. They are difficult. They have proven time and time again in my life to be painful, that I might have a really horrible experience that will have a long term consequence, that perhaps those things actually require a real effort a planning process for me because they are things that I find particularly tricky to remember or engage with it's not just that I'm worrying you know you're talking about going on the train if you see that as just anxiety then it's it's not necessarily a worrying thing not just anxiety because anxiety is a and I have definitely experienced anxiety and it is an awful awful thing Mm. um but it is freeing to realize that I'm anxious about something because it has a basis in it being a difficult or painful thing or something that has had negative consequences. And looking at it through that framework makes me realise why being treated under the other frameworks was not helpful. Yeah. And and trying, you know, that was a really difficult thing for me. Why am I not doing better? Uh, like, why can't I just accept that I'm a perfectionist and none of this matters? When I see that as, I see the the world differently to some other people and that this thing that somebody else can't see for me is a giant beacon flashing that I absolutely cannot ignore and that's what makes me good at some of the stuff I'm good at um so I can't just continue to be good at all the stuff I'm good at but just dial it down when it's inconvenient for everybody else which Mm -hmm. I think is a lot of what neurodivergent people experience oh continue to have great ideas continue to be really fast-paced and connect the dots continue to see lateral thinking and see things that other people don't see but um don't manifest that in a negative way don't you dare see something and worry about it 
you know, if you worry about it, that's going to cause me some inconvenience. And I'd rather you, you didn't do that because that's abnormal. That's you just being an anxious perfectionist. And I think perhaps I'm at the angry stage of the process of coming to terms with it because now that just makes me want to throw things. I <laughs> no love one... that for you. <laughs> <laughs> you go throw. Yeah, I don't know who I would throw it at, though. <laughs> kind of amorphous. Um, but yeah, it's, it is it is freeing, I think, to, to realise um, it was hard it felt hard because it is hard mm. um and that for me some of the things that are I've got a friend who was talking about how I do things the hard way a lot of the time and I think about that really often and I had a, a revelation this year that for me the hard way is often the easy way and the easy way is the hard way well and also do you, I mean do you find now a voice to say to people not necessarily in your direct family who understand now what's going mm. on but maybe sometimes with work or the HMRC that you know okay stop for a minute because I need help or this is what I'm going through like how can we change this where maybe you didn't before yes I think so I think I'm starting to realize that it's okay to ask for help and that it's okay to perhaps say why it helps me sometimes to see things you know if I've got a bit of a if I can think hang on if I do this I'm super privileged. If I do this, I'm able to set a precedent for people who've got less privilege than me, um, who are facing much, you know, more significant struggles. If I go along with doing it in this way, that's really awful for me. I'm just enabling this culture. And I did quite a lot of that with the one like support of my publishers who've been amazing, resisting quite a lot of the normal ways of doing things around book publicity, not doing things for free, saying when things weren't okay, even if it was to an editor of a newspaper who had agreed to do a thing about the book. And I also, you know, asked for things to be done in a way that works for me if say visually I was sent something to look at and it was just too distracting because there were loads and loads of different colours and boxes and things like actually I can't see that I can't process that um, I need it to be in a different format so could it be provided in a different format and I, I did that for a project I was working on and it turns out that nobody liked it actually it was really hard <laughs> for everybody and um, but they sort of got used to doing it that way in lockdown and because I'd said I think everybody breathed a big sigh of relief and said, actually, this doesn't work at all. And it's costing us loads more money. And that helps me, I think, sometimes advocate for myself a little bit more mm. um, to, to think about it as oh, I've got to do it. Even if I don't feel like I'm able to do it for myself, I feel like I have to do it for other people. Um, um, yeah. And it's it's amazing how actually mostly people aren't awful about it. They're just <laughs> really accommodating and nice. So. Well, I think more the more this conversation is had, the more people understand that it's a thing that they need to consider. Obviously, with, with your project, in particular with your book, there's there's an awareness there, presumably around it, with the people that are working with you to say, this is the situation. I mean, I know, like, working on a podcast with producers and things, everybody seems so aware in a lovely, lovely, lovely kind of supportive, cosseting way. And so, you know, by publishing not one but two books that will continue this conversation in people's homes and in libraries and all sorts of places, hopefully that kind of those barriers will keep being shoved down I hope so I think everybody does a little tiny piece of it and um those who can do more can do more do and then everything sort of gets there um and you you don't feel like you're shouting into a into a void 
it's true good i know we talked about our childhoods last time we spoke mm. um and i think boom and bust i mean i don't even know if that was a thing in the 80s but definitely it was all boom it was all boom <laughs> yeah, yeah, in the yeah. 80s. it was fine <laughs> but like i look back at my childhood and think when i was and when i was eight i started at a very strict very academic school you know where the hours were like eight till four thirty, and you did saturday school and it was mm. a completely different environment of sitting at your desk all day every day and that led to, uh, you know, a complete, I mean, if you can have a breakdown at eight, I had, I had a breakdown at eight um, and then OCD and self-harm and all those things at eight or nine years old. And obviously that was massively indicative of anxiety and it was anxiety, but at the root of it, I can see now was literally you changed the way that my brain was supposed to work. It didn't work the way that you wanted it to and I didn't fit into those structures that you wanted me to kind of fit into and it all just went bust basically and I could I could work really hard I, I very quickly rose to sort of the top five of the class and all those things having had very little kind of academic training in terms of how you learn and all those kind of things I you know I just I just did it because I had to do it and I'd quite often secretly stay up till 2am revising you know my latin verbs or whatever the point is that that cycle of boom and bust was set up at eight and I had absolutely no capacity to deal with it. Whereas I feel like now as an adult, obviously there's a different support network around me and I don't have the same shame that I had at eight, but it's a completely different cycle now. It's it's still based on that same trauma, like you say, but I can I can cope with it differently and I can ask for help and I can do all the things I need to do. Um, and perhaps also being an adult, I have perspective. So I understand that the ramifications of screwing up aren't what they were. Is this is boom and bust something that you think that actually looking back has been a constant from childhood? Yes, I, I think so. And as you were speaking then, the other difference, you were saying this of a difference between the childhood boom and bust and the, the adult. That's, to me, it's also power. Mm, you know, yeah. there is nobody, I mean, being a kid at school is not, a, you're not, a, it's not in a very powerful position unless the adults around you put you in a position of power. But yeah, as a kid, I my parents gave me last year some paperwork that they'd found, old school reports. And there was one that I, we'd obviously been asked to write our own school report. I was nine. And it's, I thought it was funny the first time I read it. And then I, I realised it was really, really upsetting. So I was doing really, really well at school. I had some things which I can now see. It took me a really long time to learn to read and then I did it overnight when I got interested in it. Um, but I, there was absolutely no concerns with any of my schoolwork. I was doing fantastically. And this report, I actually counted the words and counted that it's out of 400 words, 200 and something are about me trying, trying harder or improving, learning how to be better. I use the word, the phrase, I must try harder, I will try harder, I will do better, I won't rush. Um, I use it so many times. And I was nine, I wrote it in beautiful handwriting. And it's, it's actually really, really, really unbearable once you realise that this wasn't a child who needed to try any harder at all. And yet I was in this position where I had already internalised that the couple of times I had rushed, you know, I, I've never been good at spelling and grammar. Spelling and grammar just can't make those things stick. It turns out you're still allowed to be a writer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> those things, those little tiny places where I had showed that, 
as soon as I'd got that feedback, it was internalized and I was giving it back to myself. It was so punishing and it was all on me. Every single, there was no bit where I said, I'd like more help with this, or I wish it was all, I have to try harder. And um, I look at that now and I think, wow, I was only in year four and um, I'd already got to that place where that seemed normal. And nobody read that and thought, this is, this isn't okay. Um, but I tell you what, I, as a parent, am on the lookout for that with my children. Um, possibly too much. I'll, they'll never try ever in their whole lives. <laughs> um, but the trying hard is the, is the negative bit of boom for me. Because mm. I do try hard. I know I'm very self-motivated. So the extra driver that I must try harder I must be better I must improve that's where it becomes punitive and unhelpful and that's where the cycle as an adult I'm hopefully more able to disentangle myself from that particularly because there are very few people telling me because I've got myself out of those situations you set your own goals and your own standards don't you you don't have yeah you know you only get a pay rise if xyz happens etc exactly I mean that has its own sort of downsides but it's definitely for me and I that's why you know loads loads of people with ADHD are entrepreneurial or creative or you know freelance um here is a structure in which they're not not going to be put in that position and not going to have to spend as much of their energy on looking at the mirror of the outside world and trying to straighten their hair and tie and things in response to that thank you so so much Rebecca for joining me it was an amazing chat and I feel like we have another seven hours probably to cover of course (laughs) (laughs) always it's my only issue with this whole thing is that we want to obviously keep it nice and succinct and brief and all those things but actually there's so much to go through this is my therapy (laughs) we now turn to an expert today it's Dr Mohammed Abdelghani He is a lead consultant psychiatrist specialising in adult ADHD, both for the NHS and at his private practice, Dyad Medical, in London. When it was first suggested that I might have ADHD, I wanted to find a psychiatrist that had run an NHS service and a private practice, just to make sure that they'd seen the full spectrum of what ADHD can look like in a woman. Dr Mohamed Abdelghani was one of the first people I spoke to, and his kindness and openness immediately made me think of him for the podcast, because I know that he'll offer so many of you such comfort. And so I'm so thrilled to have him here today to decipher, is it my ADHD when I have an exciting day but feel low and unmotivated when it's over? Yeah, in one of our previous discussions, uh, Grace, I mentioned this boom and bust, and I actually borrowed this term from uh, the chronic fatigue world. So in chronic fatigue, we speak a lot about the boom and bust. And uh, I see it a lot in the clinic, although I didn't see it, at least personally, documented in any scientific literature. But um, uh, we see it a lot in patients with ADHD that they, they have this boom and bust both physically and emotionally. So people with ADHD, um, uh, other people might see them as the, the hyperactive child. But actually, people with ADHD, a lot of them can struggle to find the energy to continue the day. Uh, they feel more lethargic than other people and they have less energy, a lot of them. So, but the same person might also be hyperactive. So it's as if they use their battery early on in the day and then they run out of battery later on. 
So you see this a lot physically that they would be very active and then you ask them to do a simple uh, chore with you and they completely ran out of energy. And emotionally, it's the same as if they want to get the most out of the moment. So they really emotionally invest themselves in situations. And then during the same day or during the same week, they might not find the emotional energy to engage or to enjoy things as other people would be able to do. Thank you so much for joining me and this community of amazing people. We'd love it if you could follow Is It My ADHD wherever you get your podcast from. And now I'd love to hear from you. What other perspectives would you like to see explored in future episodes? Find me on Instagram at Is It My ADHD to continue the conversation. <laughs>